Morning, Christ Church. Uh, we are in a series throughout Advent called Tenders of the Garden. We're looking at our call uh, in creation, care for creation. We're also looking at ways in which Scripture uses imagery from creation to talk about the spiritual life, to talk about life with God. There's a desert theme you might have noticed in today's Scripture reading. This is the third Sunday of Advent, and our lectionary gives us readings that help us anticipate the coming of the Lord, and today's uh, lectionary gives us several different references to the desert. We heard that the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. That's from Isaiah 35. That the desert shall rejoice and blossom. And then we have in the gospel reading, John the Baptist, and what is John the Baptist famous for in terms of his life and lifestyle? living in the desert, living off of the desert, announcing the coming of the Messiah. So why, we might ask, why this desert theme in Advent? Why does this come up in our readings? And then that is because often life feels like a desert. We're waiting for the rains to come. We're waiting for something to spring out of the ground. We're in this posture and advent of waiting, looking, hoping, watching, longing. So this is a major theme of our reading uh, today. And then in James, we get uh, another theme that kind of ties into this. Our reading from James said, be patient, therefore, beloved, be patient until the coming of the Lord or until the rain comes. In fact, he plays with this imagery himself. John sa James says, Be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's so faithful to us. In the ways that you draw us to yourself, show us who you are, your character your glory, your goodness, and you show us who we are. You show us our need for you. And we sh you show us how to wait, how to wait for the rains that come. And you show us the hope and the promise of what it'll look like when they do. In your name we pray, amen. I'm going to start with a story uh, from the early centuries of the church. Um, in the fourth century, um, most followers of Jesus were still within the Roman Empire. It ultimately, as uh, to this day, we know it's all over the globe, but back in the fourth century, it was still pretty much in the Roman Empire, which was vast. It covered all of Europe. It covered all of the borderlands or the, the coastlines of the Mediterranean, all the way around the, the Near East, Africa, North Coast, and then, of course, all of Europe, and even into the hinterlands somewhat. For its first few centuries, the church had spread rapidly, and it was, it was gaining ground over these first few centuries, despite the fact that within the Roman Empire, Christians were often persecuted. It would come in waves, and, and some emperors were worse than others in terms of their persecution of the church. But a major history-altering event occurred in the early 4th century. It changed the trajectory of Rome and the Roman Empire, it changed the trajectory of the church. A Roman nobleman by the name of Constantine won power and became 
the emperor. And many of you know your history at this point, and you know who Constantine was. Soon after coming to power, Constantine gave Christianity legal status in the Roman Empire. This was a game changer. There seems to have been a a mixture of motives for him, uh, both his own religious interest in this as well as kind of a, a political savvy because Christianity was growing, and it was now 10% of the Roman Empire. Some estimate that it was, most estimate, that it was around 10%. He wanted Christians on his side. He built churches. He called church councils. By the end of his reign, Christianity had gone from being a persecuted faith of around 10% of the empire to a privileged faith in the empire comprising about 50%, from persecuted to privileged in one lifetime, from 10% to 50% of the empire. Some estimates put it around there, but there was no doubt uh, that some good things came from this. Some good things came from this change in the empire, but there are also substantial downsides for the church. Here are a couple. It became almost trendy to be a Christian is what happened. It became... Uh, something that, like, as it, as it gained legal status and they were on the up and up, uh, people turned and they saw others becoming Christian and some Christian in, in fact and some Christian in name, but it began to dilute what it meant to be a Christian. There was a, a general decline in the discipleship of Christians as this happened. The quality of the spiritual life, the quality of Like anything, uh, things that cost less usually have a lower quality. (laughs) And that was true of the church. It was less costly to follow Jesus. And the quality of discipleship began to drop. So from being on the margins of the empire, they come to the center of the empire. One scholar uh, of Christianity in Rome described it like this. said, Christianity in Rome gradually became fused until the church of the martyrs became the church of the empire. A dramatic reversal of what had previously been the case. And if we see in this some object lessons for ourselves today, we're right to do so. Though its privileged status and fusion with the empire Through its privileged status, through this fusion with the empire, Christian discipleship became compromised. The church, fused with the state, became more worldly. Some people, serious Christians, said, we want to get away from this. We want to return to Jesus. We want to be disciples, radical disciples. And they began to start this counter-movement of discipleship. They fled to, guess where? The desert. They fled to the desert. They become, to this day, we refer to them and know them as the desert mothers and the desert fathers. These people who fled this fusion of church and empire to seek radical discipleship. They thought the church's alliance with political power corrupted the church, so they wanted to get away from it. They saw how privilege softened what was once a radical devotion, and they wanted to get back to that. They wanted to not only save themselves, but reform the church by being and seeking uh, true holiness 
a life of prayer, by seeking a life of service, by returning to these basics. They took Jesus literally. They sold their possessions and gave them uh, to the poor. It started as a trickle. First, just a few people going out, and it turned into thousands and thousands of people who for about three, or th- three centuries or so med- med- kind of fled into the desert to seek a different way of being faithful to Jesus in the world. Now, some remained in solitude, and then others began to find the need for community while having solitude. So they would live in their cells and maybe at some distance from each other, and then they would get together sometimes. And this then began to become what we now call monasteries and monks. This is the beginning of the monastic movement. It started with this flea from the fusion of church and empire into the desert to seek a purer discipleship. And out of that is birthed the monastic movement, which then became a reform movement of the church. Became a voice from the margins of the church to speak in to the church and seek its reform. Now, why the desert? The desert is harsh. This is why. It's harsh. It's lonely. It's fierce. It'll kill you. It's stark. It's austere. And that's part of what they were after. We use the word deserted. To mean left alone in difficult circumstances. It's hard to survive in the desert. St. Jerome, a 4th century saint, put it simply. He said, the desert loves to strip bare. The desert loves to strip bare. Gerald Sitzer says this way. It strips away illusion. It strips away pretension. And it enables us to recognize our absolute need for God. Ideal geography for radical discipleship. These desert mothers and fathers, they looked to the Bible and they saw how significant the desert is in the Bible as a place for encountering God, for wrestling with God, for seeking God. The people of Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. They knew this story. They saw that Elijah spent many years in the wilderness. They saw that John the Baptist conducted his entire ministry from the wilderness. And in fact, we just heard Jesus in our gospel reading. Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John, and he said, What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? Somebody in royal soft robes? Jesus himself was immediately driven into the desert after his baptism for 40 days where he wrestled with the devil. And the Apostle Paul, after his conversion, also spent time in the desert. We see this theme through all these major events and characters of the biblical story. So again and again, the story of salvation passes through the desert. The desert is a place of formation, of purging, of refining, of being shaped into the likeness of Christ. Now, there are ways we're going to look at how God uses the desert in our lives today. And this comes from the tradition of what we have seen from the desert mothers and fathers. Three things. One, it's an arena of struggle. The desert is an arena of struggle. Two, it is a sanctuary of silence. And then three, it's the soil of virtue. And for each one of these, I'll share 
one saying of the desert mothers or fathers. Now, you can find multiple books if you look around where you can find these collections because uh, a lot of them have been recorded and preserved throughout history where people would go out to seek in the cell or cave one of these desert mothers or fathers that's like this wise sage, and they would ask for a word, and then they would get a response. And it was often not more than anywhere from one sentence to three or four sentences, and that's simple. And then they would go and they would meditate on that for two years until they lived it before they sought more information. They wanted to be formed in it. So we have these collections of desert sayings from the desert mothers and fathers. So first of all, we're looking at the desert is an arena of struggle. Yes, the desert is harsh, it's lonely, it's fierce, it's stark, it's austere, but according to the word of God through the prophet Isaiah, life does not come to us by getting out of the desert. Or into a different geography. The good news is not that God says, I will come and I will take you out of the desert and I will put you into a beautiful garden. But by staying in the geography of the soul, the geography of the desert and waiting. And then discovering that God comes to us even in the desert. And we might say, especially, especially in the desert. When the long-awaited Messiah comes, his shalom will come to us in the desert places. Let's look at our Isaiah reading, a section from that again today. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground shall become springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. And then later Isaiah says, a highway shall be there through the desert, and it shall be called the holy way. The holy way. God does not say, I will get you out of there to a better place. No, he says, I will bring to you streams in the desert. The desert mothers and fathers sought to find that highway, the holy way in the desert, and learn some valuable lessons along the way, and one of them was the importance of struggle. One of the desert mothers, her name was Ama Sincletica, and they were either Ama or Abba for the men and women, and Ama Sincletica said this, she said, in the beginning, there are a great many battles and a good deal of suffering for those who are advancing towards God, and afterwards, ineffable joy. It is like those who wish to light a fire. At first, they are choked by smoke and cry, and by this means obtain what they seek. So we also must kindle the divine fire in ourselves through tears and hard work. We long, we long for the light of the fire, for the warmth of the fire. The blazing glory of God within us. We long for that. But there's no way to get there. Without some tears, without some choking on the smoke, without some grief, without some trial. One desert saint said, if a person knows an Abba, or a spiritual mentor, with whom he can make progress in discipleship, but only by walking in a way that will make life hard. Are you with me? 
One desert saint said, if a person knows an Abba, this wise person, with whom he can make progress in discipleship, but only by walking in a way that will make life hard, that person is an atheist, atheist if he doesn't go there. What does he mean by that? He means if you walk away from the struggle of growth, you're living like there is no God. If you walk away from the struggle of growth, you're living like there is no God. Because God's found in the struggle. You know what the name Israel means? The very name Israel that God gives to Jacob? It means one who wrestles with God. The very name of God's people means to struggle, and to struggle even with God himself. Belden Lane writes in his book, that is almost worth the title alone. I love this book and this title. He writes, Simone Weil was surely right when she asked, isn't it the greatest possible disaster when you are wrestling with God not to be beaten? How would you like to wrestle with God and feel like you won? There is no hope in the world for us if that's the case. God's invitation to the spiritual life is a call to the high-risk venture of being loved more fiercely than we ever might have dreamed. The desert is an arena of struggle. The desert's also a sanctuary of silence. The prophet Elijah went into the arena of struggle as he challenged the prophets of Baal. You might remember that story. He challenged the prophets of a false god to come down and burn up a sacrifice, and they did so and nothing happened. And then he douses it with water. I'm speeding through the story here. Douses it with water and calls upon his god, and his god, our god, comes down and consumes it. And then Elijah goes on the run from a death threat by Queen Jezebel. And um, a much bigger story than that, but suffice it to say that Elijah was depressed. He was depleted. He was asking God to take his life. Please let me die, God. He was utterly empty. He collapses in the desert under a small shrub. And there, in the desert, he's fed by ravens. And he does nothing but sleep. And eat. And then he wakes up and the angel says, hey, here's some more food. Just go back to sleep for a while. <laughs> that's, all, that's what you need. He sleeps and eats again. He's thirsty for a word from the Lord, though. And he wakes up and God tells him to go and stand on this desert mountain so that Elijah can encounter Yahweh. He tells him to go stand on the desert mountain and the strong winds come, but God's not in it. There's an earthquake. God's not in it. There was a fire. God's not there either. And then a gentle breeze comes, and God is there in the faint breath of a whisper. He's there in the breath of a whisper. In the desert, we can hear the breath of a whisper. In the sanctuary of silence, we can often hear God in ways that we can nowhere else. One of the desert sayings concerns a desert father named Agathon. He says, uh, it was said of Abba Agathon that for three years he lived with a stone in his mouth until he had learned to keep silence. 
There's a place beyond words where we can encounter God for who he is in himself, beyond our descriptions, beyond the limits of language, of the English language. And we all know that it's difficult to be in dialogue with anyone if our own words are filling up the conversational space. My family and I spent some time in uh, the Taizé community while on sabbatical. It's a monastic community in France that invites others to come and and stay with them for a week at a time and enter into their rhythms. And um, every day they would get together for morning, noonday, and evening prayer. The monks themselves had two other prayer times that weren't public. But these three were open three times a day for those who came to be with them, to pray with them, and to enter into their, their rhythms. And every time they gathered, there was a combination of Scripture, simple songs and silence. So in the middle of every one of these services, they would stop all readings, all prayers, all music. And with 1,000 other people in the room, we would all simply kneel in silence for a full 10 minutes. Now, 10 minutes might not sound like a long time, but when you're in a room with 1,000 people and you can hear the drop of a pen, there is something incredibly Uh, intimate about that, spacious about that. In their book of prayers and songs, they give a little description uh, and maybe even a little bit of an explanation of this part of their service. They say, when we try to express communion with God in words, we rapidly reach the end of our capacities. But in the depths of our being, Christ is praying far more than we imagine. Compared to the immensity of that hidden prayer of Christ in us, our explicit praying dwindles to almost nothing. That is why silence is so essential in discovering the heart of prayer. Although God never stops trying to communicate with us, God never wants to impose anything on us. Often, God's voice comes in a whisper, in a breath of silence. Remaining in silence in God's presence, open to the Spirit, is already prayer. The desert is an arena of struggle. It's also a sanctuary of silence. And finally, it's the soil of virtue. Our reading from James today hints at this. It says, be patient, therefore, beloved, Until the coming of the Lord, the farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. And apparently there was a lot of grumbling going on in the community and judgment going on in the community, things that were not very virtuous, not very loving of neighbor. And James appeals to their patience and says, the rain will come to the soil eventually. Wait on the Lord with patient endurance. As an example of suffering and patience, beloved, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, James says, like Isaiah, as an example of suffering and patience. It's a desert saying by uh, one, of the, one of the mothers or fathers who is unnamed in this case. It says this, even if our mouths stink with fasting, and by the way, if anybody who's fasted or been around somebody who's fasting Bad breath comes with prolonged fasting. Even if our mouths stink with fasting, 
and we have learned all the scriptures and memorized the whole Psalter, we still lack what God wants, humility and charity, or love. Humility and love. And you, if you, as you read through the Desert Fathers and Mothers, they distill the, the virtuous life, the life of character, of, of Christ-likeness down to these two most fundamental things, humility and charity or love. The holy way, this is the holy way. To walk in humility, to walk in love is the holy way that Isaiah spoke about that emerges. This holy way emerges from the desert. Jesus, of course, ultimately is the holy way. He is the path through the rugged terrain. He is the way, the truth, and the life. When John the Baptist was in prison, he heard about what a man named Jesus was doing, and it sounded like a lot like what Isaiah the prophet had foretold. So John sent some of his followers to Jesus. And John the Baptist's followers go to Jesus and they say, are you the one? And Jesus said this, go back and tell John what you hear and see. And here's what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Then Jesus turns back to the crowd, and he says, what did you go out into the wilderness, the desert? What did you go out there to look at? Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? Someone in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes, he says, are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. And he says, This, John the Baptist, this is the one about whom it is written. Jesus is talking to the crowds now. This man, John the Baptist, is the one about whom it is written. See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. The holy way. A way, this is the scene of Isaiah that he saw in the desert. A highway shall be there and it shall be called the holy way. The way that John the Baptist talked about was only entered by repentance. The life of Christ is the holy way, and the entrance into that holy way is through repentance. This is a theme in Advent. Sometimes Advent is called the mini Lent because there is a note of repentance. There's a note even in Advent, even while we hear Uh, commercialize just all of the the jingles and joy of the season during Advent in the church. That comes. That comes for us Christmas Day and through the Christmas tide. But Advent in the church is, there's an element of longing, of yearning, of ache. And there's a call to get ourselves ready for the coming of our Savior who will come again. He came once He will come again. And one of the ways we prepare for his coming is through repentance. It's a choice that you might be facing right now not to run from the hard, not to run from the struggle, the desert, the heat, thinking that the life God has for you is somehow not in the desert, that you have to escape the geography of the soul right now that you're in, to go to some other place. 
And repentance can look like saying no to the times that we do run and look beyond where God has us. A choice to wait patiently on the Lord who will bring rains and who will produce a harvest of goodness and glory. That is the promise. That's the promise that we're all banking on. That's the promise of Advent. And as we do that, not just individually, but as a church, we become reformed as the church. We can become an alternate community, an alternate society to the empires around us. We can become a desert community in a sense that's living out humility, that's living out love, the countercultural movement of faithful disciples, a new kind of monasticism. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your forgiveness that you receive us again and again as we come in repentance, as we turn from the ways that we have gone to run from you, to run perhaps even from the the desert in which you have us for this time. We turn to you. We, We ask your forgiveness, Lord. We thank you for your mercies. We thank you for your forgiveness and grace. And we put our hope once again, our Advent hope in you, that you will bring the rains, that the crocuses will spring up from the ground, that there'll be streams in the desert. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.